my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 19 of Great Quarter Guys, where finance and freight meet and everything in between. And today we're doing a little bit of the in-between. We are talking about the legal aspect of trucking. Uh, nuclear verdicts has been a major topic uh, along the industry for the last 10 or 15 years. I have one of the most prominent uh, trucking defense lawyers in the country here with me, Joe Papalardo. How are we today? Doing great. Thanks, Andrew. All right. So, uh, so Joe has been trying uh, trucking cases for, for how long now? Oh, it's coming up on 40 years. 40 years. Uh, and he says he's tried over 150 cases. Uh, and I'll give you, I'll give you a little moment to uh, give us a little background on, uh, on, your, on your work every day. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad I could be in the studio today because I was in Chattanooga. Um, as I said, I've been practicing law for about 40 years. The practice has changed immensely. Uh, for about the last 20 uh, years, I've um, really concentrated on defending trucking companies and truck drivers in uh, civil, that is, money cases. And I'm fortunate to represent some of the greatest and largest and best uh, trucking companies in the country and and also insurance companies for trucking companies. Right. So uh, let's just jump right into it. We we, we used you as, uh, as, a, as a major resource in our paper that we wrote on nuclear verdicts back uh, in November. And we'll just start at the very top. You know, we define nuclear verdicts in two ways. We defined it in a monetary way, which is kind of uh, the basic way to do things. Anything over $10 million, that wasn't how you defined it. And then uh, other people define it kind of as a, as a multiple of the damages done. How do you define a nuclear verdict? Well, I kind of define it as a verdict that will shock the conscience of the, of the average person. Um, and that, that can be anything. But these verdicts that we talk about, um, and I follow them all, even though I'm I practice law in uh, Ohio. I go all over the country, and my firm, Gallagher Sharp, give a little plug there, uh, has been really great supporting me and our trucking group. But anyways, um, you hear about verdicts that $10 million verdicts or $20 million, um, I I know people are going to be aggravated at me, but they're really not that unusual nowadays. Uh, those are pretty commonplace. Right. You mentioned earlier we were, we were gonna we're gonna talk about the the latest one here uh, that happened to RCX in Arkansas. They they had a twenty three million dollar um, nuclear verdict that kind of sunk them. They had to shut their doors. But you said a minute ago that that wasn't even uh, that's not that that's pretty commonplace. That twenty three million. Yeah, those happen quite often. And I noticed that verdict was actually reduced by a court of appeals down to seven and a half million. And that cases are routinely tried and settled for that kind of money. But, um, and I'm not trying to be flippant about that. I mean, people, the, the average regular person, not lawyers, I call them regular people, <laughs> um, are uh, saying, what are you, crazy? It's more than a million dollars, but those days have come and gone. We're talking about verdicts in the hundred, two hundred million dollar range. Um, but anything, yeah, I mean, you talk about 50 million, 100 million, then we're really talking like the guy said, a billion here and a billion there. Pretty soon you're talking about real money. And, um, yeah, but um, I can see where this company, this poor uh, company got put out of business 
on a verdict that was $23 million and reduced to 7.5. Yeah, I'll give you guys some facts about this case. So this is, uh, this is RCX in Arkansas. They're, this is a third-generation trucking company, uh, and they had to shut down two weeks ago. They had been fighting, again, this $23 million verdict from a 2015 accident, and, and like Joe just said, that verdict actually was uh, dropped down to $7.5 million in a, from a court of appeals in 2019, uh, but the company, that's still too much money for, for the company to survive, so they've had to shut their doors. Uh, I think they've had about 30 drivers that have had to find new jobs. And we'll, here's some details of the actual wreck itself. So one of the RCX trucks broke down en route uh, with a truckload of L'Oreal products. The load had been brokered by, by Sunset. Upon breaking down, RCX uh, then contracted another carrier to finish the trip. And while that carrier was driving, they, uh, they hydroplaned, ended up uh, running off the side of the road, running into the other lane, and uh, actually killed the driver and, and seriously injured uh, another person. That's kind of the facts of, the, the facts of it. What do, what do you think about that uh, that wreck in particular, Joe? Well, it's tragic, and um, anytime there's a tragedy like that, people are going to want to sympathize with with the uh, with the injured party. And um, even though I'm a big booster of trucks and, and uh, trucking companies and drivers, um, you know, the, we can talk about it a little later. But people are scared of trucking companies and um, and trucks because they're huge and they're big right. and all that. So um, it looks to me like that was a obviously a liability case. In other words, the the hydroplaning truck driver was at fault if he went over the center line or she. And um, but it appears to me also that the trucking company that um, sent the load over to the second motor carrier mm-hmm. RCX that sent it over retained some uh, aspect of control over the um, over the over the the trip the load. And uh, jurors are looking for whoever's controlling the the um the trucking company or the load or or anything like that they're always looking you've heard the term deep pockets and plaintiffs lawyers the people who sue us are expert at trying to get more than one as many as they can people responsible for an accident so it looks to me like that was their focus here what would you know? You say that the that RCX contained or retained control over about time over the load. What would uh, what would a situation look like where they're not in control? Like if they were able to to get rid of liability there, what would that look like? Well, what you're looking for is not controlling the time, means, and manner. Those are the they're legal terms, but they make sense, don't they? They where you're telling the truck driver where to be, when, how to do it, what route to take, making them check in with you, all of those types of things where the the driver essentially becomes the um, the employee or the driver of the company that's trying to avoid liability. I see. Okay. Uh, so you know you uh, you're obviously a defense uh, a defense attorney for trucking companies. Tell us tell us a little bit about the differences between. Uh, actually, let's just start with the defense strategy. If you're um, if if a trucking company one of your clients gets into a wreck, uh, what is the first thing they do? Do they call you as soon as the wreck happens, or after a suit has been filed, or, or what's, uh, what's yeah. The- uh, well, um, I'm getting too old to do it, but I've done well over 100 what we call rapid or catastrophic, or some people call it cat responses. And, yes, we get called literally sometimes within minutes, but at least hours of a serious uh, wreck. And we're out there right away um, sort of controlling and um, making sure that the investigation goes the way you want, interviewing the driver, making sure they're okay, and um, getting all the facts, the roadway, the equipment, uh, looking for videos, looking for witnesses, all of that. So, yes, I, uh, my team and I um, 
and do these rapid responses on a regular basis. Our firm did uh, for over 40 of them last year. And it's best if, if you're on the trucking side to have a lawyer, uh, whether it's me or someone else, get <laughs> um, retained immediately. And a lot of the better insurance companies do that, and the, and the better trucking companies, the larger ones, will call us immediately. Anytime, day or night, my trunk is filled with uh, gear to go out um, to a roadway or a scene. Uh, and so all of us do that, yeah. So, uh, so Cassandra Gaines, a big friend of FreightWaves, she has told us that the, one of the first things she does when she gets one of these calls is she tries to get the driver's phone. She says one of his phone can be one of the most important things about uh, learning about the wreck. Is that do you do you agree with that? Do you often go after the phone? Yeah, and the question is which phone? Uh, unfortunately, several the drivers can have more than one phone, and you have to always ask that question. It can be uncomfortable, but yes, if there's any hint. Um, well, either way, um, you want to make sure you know whether the driver was on the phone. That's one of our hot-button issues. Texting, talking, of course, texting's completely prohibited. You can never do that. No emails, no texts, no mm-hmm. checking the Internet. But even speaking on the phone, it has to be hands-free, and you want to know right away whether a driver, there's any possibility that the driver was on the phone because jurors hate that. That's one of our hot-button Issues. Right, is that the, the dirty five? Yeah. You want to run through those for a little bit? Sure, I can do that. Um, we we kind of coined um, the phrase dirty five, and what we were trying to do is to, when we um, educate or speak or whatever, we were trying to get people to understand what the really hot-button issues that when in our cases and our focus groups and our um, mock, mock juries, what jurors hate. And the first one is fatigue. Any hint of hours of service violations, log violations, um, t- you know, tired trucker, people are terrified of that. And with the new ELD mandate right. where the um, electronic logs are now, you know, ubiquitous, they're everything, um, we should have a lot less of that. But jurors are terrified of uh, fatigue and tired truckers. The second one is distracted driving, cell phones. Right. Um, Looking at your phone, looking at the internet, um, if there's any hint of that, it's it's really bad. Um, the third one is um, alcohol and controlled substances, drug and alcohol. Uh, as you know, under most circumstances, or many circumstances, drivers have to be tested after the accident, uh, if there's a fatality or if there's um, a citation. And... Um, and, of course, then there's random testing under other parts of the uh, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Regulations. If there's any hint of alcohol or controlled substance usage, that terrifies jurors. Um, and then number four is uh, maintenance issues. Um, if there's something wrong with the truck, brakes, um, stability, um, even um, headlights or anything like that, you know you know that in the regulations with pre-trip and post-trip inspections, there's a whole list of things that they have to look at. That's a good place to start as to what jurors are t- afraid of, mm-hmm. if there's any maintenance issues. And then the final one is um, training, ret- uh, hiring and training of drivers. Uh, that's overlooked a lot, and um, plaintiff's lawyers are expert, and their, ex- their experts uh, are um, really keen on showing jurors that they think these people have not been trained. They're on autopilot. Set them and forget them. And once they're hired, they don't get any training. Um, they don't get recurrent training. Mm-hmm. Um, no Smith system, no Keller training, that kind of stuff. And, and uh, you know, I understand that there's money involved. It's an economic thing. But uh, training and recurrent training and proficiency of drivers is number five on our dirty five. 
So, Joe, you do a lot of training with other lawyers around the country. Uh, you do, you know, multiple national speaking events uh, on a, in a given year. Why is it, uh, you know, you, you, we talked to you before when we wrote the paper that uh, that plaintiff lawyers are much more well-organized. Right? They do a better job sharing their information between the lawyers. Why is it that uh, that plaintiffs share their information better than uh, better than defendant lawyers? Well, I, I've, never, I've never been able to really answer that question. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, especially if I'm giving information to somebody in California, I'm in mm-hmm. Ohio, um, I'm happy to share. I speak, uh, and a lot of us do, a lot of the uh, trucking lawyers do that. I'll tell anyone any of my secrets. I share briefs and things like that. But a lot of people are kind of, they hold things to themselves for some weird, like, competitive reason. Do they think and, they're going to lose clients or something? Yeah, and I am not interested in somebody's client in California. But um, but plaintiff's lawyers think that every time a plaintiff gets a gigantic verdict, it mm-hmm. helps the entire plaintiff industry. Right. They think that a, um, a rising tide lifts all boats, and mm-hmm. so they will share everything. They have... Uh, they have um, litigation packets that they share with each other. They'll send each other all of their briefs. They'll send each other depositions of company witnesses and experts. They're always doing that. And the defense side, and I'm telling you, this has gone on my whole career, has always been reluctant to do that. And I don't, I've never understood it. Hmm. Well, you know, one of the things that we found out while we were doing this paper was that, you know, nuclear verdicts are increasing, that both in the frequency and in the amount, at the same time as actual fatalities and highway uh, injuries are coming down. Uh, they seem to have peaked back in 2016, 2017. What, what do you think that reason is, that, that, they're, that they're bigger and um, more often these, these verdicts are happening while the actual wrecks are coming down? Well, I think it's two reasons. Um, the first one is... That money just doesn't mean like what it used to. I mean, I, I'm seriously, when I was a young lawyer, and that was a long time ago, when I started, if you heard a million dollars, like you fainted. Uh, right. that, that's nothing anymore. It's like the, the $3 million McDonald's uh, verdict with the hot coffee. That was, yeah, that was although, massive. Yeah, it was, although I, I have different opinions on that. But, no, uh, but maybe we can get into that. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that, that's not as egregious. I mean, everyone talks about that. And yeah. it really was the... It's um, like the original, right? Yeah, it was sort of the genesis of all this tort reform that right. started in the country. It really was. They That started an, ent- an entire revolution in limiting um, plaintiff's um, recoveries and so forth. But the second thing, I think, is social media. Everyone talks. Mm. Everyone um, describes things. They see lifestyles of the rich and famous, and, and money just doesn't mean like what it used to. And the other thing, I guess I said two, but I'm going to say three, plaintiff's lawyers have been teaching each other not to be afraid to ask for a lot of money. It's called anchoring. anchoring right. Yes, and, uh, and they figure that if you ask for a huge amount of money – and the jury gives you some uh, awards, some uh, percentage of, of that, that they're actually doing the defense a favor. Right. And that needs to be covered in every trial not to tell the jurors not to fall for that. Yeah, it seems like they'll they'll ask for five hundred thousand or they'll ask for five hundred million, and if they think that they're not quite as egregious as five hundred million, they'll give them four hundred million and, and feel good about it. Right, and the defense, it's up to the defense to 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 point that out in closing argument to say you're not doing any favors this this case has not that kind of value don't think don't fall for that that's and i've actually mentioned the term anchoring to juries so we've you know that's one strategy that uh, the plaintiff used another one the most famous one obviously is the reptile theory this has kind of uh, become common knowledge between people but you've done a lot of uh, studying on it and written about it you want to jump in and tell me uh, what is the reptile theory and how they use it sure um yeah, it was sort of a revolutionary theory. Um, there was a book in uh, 2000, written in 2009 by a very famous plaintiff's lawyer and a jury consultant, and it's called Reptile. 
and then they developed an entire industry surrounding it. But the idea of the reptile is to get the jurors scared, worried, um, terrified, so that the sort of um, prehistoric part of our brains um, down in the um, the basal uh, cortex and the amygdala, those are all mm-hmm. neuro. It really does have a basis in neuroscience. Yeah. And so when we were not evolved as a as a um, uh, species. species, yeah, thank you. Um, we we had a fight or flight mentality, um, our ancestors, and that is what the reptile tries to to uh, tap into. They tell the jury that the community is in danger, the jurors are in danger, the families of the jurors are in danger. They can't actually say what would you do if this was your son or wife or daughter or something, but they can say this community has been put in needless danger by this trucking company, and the only way to prevent that in the future. It, uh, is to is with your verdict. So right. they tie, they tie the verdict not to the injuries, but they tie the verdict to to improving and making society safer. And societal and safety rules um, need to be followed. And if they're not, the jury has to take care of that. And you, you mentioned uh, they call it the golden rule. Is that correct? That you can't say, you know, what if this was your son or daughter? Is that is that in law, or is that just kind of like? practicing between lawyers yeah that's um that's pretty much it's it's the law of virtually every state and of course federal courts use state law there's no federal common law so what that means is that almost every state says to the um the plaintiff you can't say to the juror what would you do if this was uh, your family member your husband daughter wife whatever because that's just too inflammatory so what they try to do with this reptile is go in the back door and do indirectly what they could not do directly by using the buzzwords of community, needless danger, um, danger to the motoring public, and um, the, the that there are safety rules put in place to protect the community, and they were violated here, and you have to take care of it. And they empower the jurors. It's, the whole thing is about giving the jury power to to make things better. And what's your what, what's your punchback against that? How do you well, stop that? Well, the way the punchback against that and it. it um, it's, it's, it can be effective is to tell the jury exactly what's going on here, that they're being sold, um, they're being talked down to and sold a bill of goods, that they think that you will decide this case not on the law of the case that the judge gives you and the facts and the evidence that you hear, which is the every court will tell the jury you are to de- decide this case on the law that I give you and the facts that you heard. And what the, the anti-reptile is to say, don't fall for this. We're we're here to decide this case in a civil manner. It's a civil case. That's mm-hmm. what they call it, not criminal, civil. And we're supposed to reason with each other. We're not – we've evolved from what they're trying to do to you. And I actually mention the reptile and so, many other lawyers do. We're, we're not afraid of it anymore, and it can be very effective. They say they've collected like over $7 billion, but we're not afraid of it anymore. We know – we have ways of countering it by appealing to the jurors – better nature to their evolved brains. I call it the primate brain, not the reptile brain. Right. Yeah. So what, what, what other ways, uh, so that's how you punch back in court, what would you tell to your carrier clients uh, that, you know, that are trying to avoid these in the future? What are ways that they can shore up their liability and make sure that they don't get hit with one of these uh, verdicts? Well, the first way is to pay attention to those five things. Uh, there's actually more, but the, to pay attention to those five things. Right. Make sure the hours of service are right. Make sure the maintenance is good. Make sure that the drivers are properly trained. Make sure that they're not on their phones or distracted. And, of course, that you know goes without saying that 
they can't be on alcohol or drugs. So that's so everything's a lawsuit starts before it ever happens, and by that I mean that the way trucking companies are run, and you start with the FMCSRs. Everyone has the green book. If you comply with those, you're you're miles ahead. Um, and then the second thing is that once an accident happens, to be proactive, what we were talking about before, that rapid response, uh, so that facts can be gathered, the good and the bad, and we, we know about it. And then the third thing is that um, both the driver, everyone forgets about the drivers, but the drivers have to be totally prepared before they're put under oath in what's called a deposition that's, that's in the pretrial phase of a case. And, of course, any of the company witnesses that are put up as representing, representatives of the company have to be fully prepared, and I mean multiple preparation sessions, so that they know exactly what to expect and there, it can be uncomfortable. I, I, as a lawyer, my team, everyone who who, know, who does this, trucking lawyers, have to actually cross-examine these people, and get and and really lay on them, hammer them, because that's what they're going to get when the plaintiff's lawyer gets a hold of them. Right. And there can be witness training by psychologists in certain cases. They call it witness preparation. I call it witness training. Um, if it's really if you have a r- very difficult driver or a very difficult company witness, but it has to be done multiple times, and the the proper amount of money has to be spent on preparation before deposition because that's under oath. So once a deposition occurs, you can't unring that bell. It's over. That that testimony is on the record, and you can't go back from it. So that's why it has to be prepared for. Well, cool. Let's shift. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit to uh, how brokers prepare. How can uh, you know? We've we've talked about some major brokers that have had uh, you know a seemingly a lot of issues over the years that they've that seemingly the same issues. Um, what are the major uh, causes for liability for brokers? You know, we've talked about two. I think and it's something like control and proper vetting. But you want to touch on those? Yeah, I'll start with the um, the second one you mentioned first. Um, the the first line of attack of a broker is that they didn't properly choose the trucking company that they um, brokered the load to or assigned the load to, and that's really um, it's really a bogus argument. I mean, if a broker, I mean, I'm sorry, if a motor carrier has um, a satisfactory or a rating, of course, many of the trucking companies aren't even that are unrated now because of the backlog or there's not enough data or something like that but mm-hmm. if they if they are a DOT authorized motor carrier and you go to like carrier 411 or something one of those services and you you know they're they're authorized to operate and so forth well okay they they shouldn't be the broker shouldn't be sued just because uh, the trucking company makes a mistake and has an accident. And in fact, the law is getting much better for the brokers on that. It's called federal preemption. I won't bore you with it. The second one is if a broker, and this is really what they have to avoid, if they start controlling that motor carrier, um, they basically stand in the shoes of the trucking company and they get their, they get into controlling the routes the time, means, manner, kind of like what we talked about before. Exactly. They yeah. have to stay out of that. Um, even if a trucking company has a brokerage, those have to be separate. You cannot have a broker sticking their nose in and either controlling um, the driver, compensating the driver, disciplining the driver, telling the driver what routes to take, where, when. That's why it's so important for the broker-carrier agreement to have a ability of the uh, of the motor carrier to turn down loads. You can't, you have to avoid issues of control if you're a broker. 
Well, let's touch a touch a bit on that uh, industry on the uh, on the proper vetting again because there's no there's no industry standard for this, is there? No, um, and that's that that kind of just bounced and jumped jumped up out of nowhere. The 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 um, there is a concept in the law called negligent entrustment. That's just fancy words for saying giving a vehicle to the wrong person. Sure. And so that has sort of morphed into that the broker has to get involved in really sticking their nose in. Um, looking into the details of the trucking company. Do they keep their driver qualification files? Do they keep all the federally required records? I think that's a mistake. I don't think brokers should be doing that because what you're doing is going down that path that the plaintiff's lawyers want. They want you to start doing that, and then they say, oh, well, you didn't do it well enough. So if you don't have a duty to do something, and there's nothing that says a broker does, broker liability cases have not uh, blown up the way we thought they would way back when there was a case called SRAM versus a broker. I won't mention them, big broker. Um, and we said, okay, well, that's the new thing. They really aren't that um, uh, prevalent. But when brokers start controlling, or I'm sorry, not controlling, but doing way too much vetting of trucking companies, then the plaintiff's lawyers argue you didn't go far enough. Mm. So okay. there's a concept in the law that if they are a DOT authorized carrier, if they have a continue to operate uh, authority, if they... Um, you know, you can check CSA scores, which, you know, th- those are not real reliable, but you, know, you can look into them, the public parts. Then you leave it at that. You don't start digging more and asking for all their documents and things like that. That's the negligence selection. Well, so if you're, um, you know, you may not know the answer to this, but if you're a broker and you uh, you don't want to get into a, a controlling position where you're trying to, you're dictating routes and you're dictating drop-off and pickup times, how do you guarantee, uh, you know, adequate service to your shipper uh, that, you're, that you're brokering the load for if you, if you don't really know, if you don't have visibility into what's going on? Well, I think that, you know, it's a by-play, and, of course, everyone wants to get business. And, by the way, um, you got to watch what you say on your websites because some, some of the brokers, the large brokers, say we choose only the safest carriers. We will do all of your vetting for you. They, I think it's a mistake, but I also understand there's a business aspect to that. Mm-hmm. Everybody's competitive, and they want to get business. So I think you assure the shipper that this is a DOT-authorized carrier. They have a continue to operate. Either they're not rated because the government hasn't gotten to them or they have a satisfactory rating, but they are legal to operate. Um, there's nothing egregious. We did some checking on 411 or whatever the carrier uh, sites are that have data. We've done a PSP or we've looked at the PSP on the drivers and they have insurance. They have the right financial responsibility under Part 387. All of that and then you you don't assure anyone but you tell the shipper this this carrier is good to go. We can't, we, we certainly can't look into the depth of what um, it might take to, we can't become the motor carrier. I guess that's the best way to say it. Okay. Um, well, uh, so I, you know, I've kind of run out of questions here, but we can talk about, uh, you, you got anything on your side you'd like, like to chat about? Well, um, some of the things we're seeing now, um, in addition to the, um, to the nuclear verdicts are, and I really want to mention this just briefly, is that, Insurance companies sometimes um, send out people to look into the trucking company's um, uh, operation, and some now insurance companies are starting to get sued, believe it or not, for um, sort of assuming the duty of the safety of the people they insure. So um, that's sort of a, 
on the horizon type of issue. Um, uh, as far as other issues coming up, um, we, we still um, are interested in the reptile, continuing to combat that and sharing information about that. And, um, uh, you know, oh, I do want to mention another thing about these nuclear verdicts. Okay. If you're at fault and you're wrong, if the trucking company is responsible for this accident and you're going to admit to the jury and to the family this is our fault, you have to go all in on that. You can't do it um, half-baked. <laughs> I won't say the other <laughs> word. You can't go halfway. If you're going to admit that you're at fault, then you do it and you tell the jury we're taking, we own this, we're taking full responsibility for it. We haven't been able to agree on the compensation. You're going to have to decide that. But you can't say, well, yeah, we're at fault, but... That's really important. Jurors hate that. They also hate being talked down to by either the, the defendant or their lawyers. Folks, you're not going to understand this, but I'll try and explain it to you. They don't want to hear that. And they also don't want to be hearing things over and over again. They hate repetition. Repetition. They hate being talked down to. I'm glad you brought that up because we, you know, we spoke to uh, we spoke to lawyers on both sides when we were doing this paper, and we spoke to actually a colleague of yours or a friend of yours, Joe Freed, and he we asked him what he what his reasons for why these uh, why these nuclear verdicts were happening, why the why trucking companies were losing, and he he mentioned that exactly was gamesmanship. It was that idea that of not accepting full responsibility or you know trying to to deflect, saying that the the other person could have done something else better or, or different, uh, and trying to kind of push off liability. Yeah, I agree. And Joe Freed is one of the, the, the classiest. Uh, he makes a lot of money and he hits trucking companies, but he's a superb lawyer. And I'm not surprised he said that. It's, um, it's just so self-evident. Um, if, if you're going to, the jurors, all they want is honesty. That's, I've learned that over the years of 40 years of trying cases nearly. And the way they want people to be straight with them. They want honesty. They don't want people fudging or gamesmanship. Yeah, I think it, it may have been you that we spoke uh, a bit about that talking down portion. That the collectively, the twelve people, the twelve jurors are so much more intelligent than than the individual parts. You know, there's some there's some kind of like, you know, uh, there's intel there's an intelligence there, and they don't they don't want to be spoken down to. Uh, but one one of the things that I, I do want to touch on before we get out of here is. Uh, uh, it's something that Bobby Shannon actually mentioned to me about insurance towers and the, some of the reasons why. I asked him in that case, uh, the case in Columbus, why that eventually went to trial. I asked him why didn't he settle, and he said, I tried to settle. I would have settled that case, uh, but he didn't really have the, the liberty to settle that case. So, you know, talk a little bit about why uh, you don't have the liberty to settle some cases and you're forced into trial. Yeah, and the final analysis, if there's insurance or the client, if it's a trucking company, it's their decision. Uh, the lawyer can give their best advice. But the problem with these towers is there's layers of insurance. There's up to 1 million, then there's 1 to 10 or 1 to 5, and then they can go as high as, I don't know what, 200 $300 million. And there's all of these excess carriers and what they call reinsurers in the mix. Mm -hmm. And somebody uh, makes a final decision. Whoever's got the control at that point, you may have never met them. They're not your client. They're 10 layers above the insurance company that hired you or your client. And... Um, Someone makes a decision, and uh, maybe they don't know anything about law. The problem is that accountants and bean counters have sort of taken over the uh, the claims business in many ways, and uh, they think it's crazy what you're talking about, and so they let the case go to trial, and then bad things can happen. But I'm not saying you know anybody did anything wrong in that big case. Things happen. Um, I've lost and I've won. And any lawyer who tells you that they've tried cases and they've never lost is a liar because that <laughs> means they haven't tried cases. But, um, you know, but the point is that the corporate, the corporate uh, aspect of insurance and uh, claims handling is, uh, 
it's just not the way it was when I started. <laughs> so you uh, let's uh, give the people some more info about you. You're based in Cleveland, correct? Yes, I'm a partner with the firm of Gallagher Sharp in Cleveland, um, also Toledo, Detroit, and Columbus, and uh, we have sort of a national trucking practice. Um, and um, like I said, I, I'm just almost all trucking now, and I, I can't drive a stick shift, but I know everything there is to know about trucking. That's why I tell people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's been great talking to you, Joe. I will uh, I'll let you get out of here. I'll move on, and uh, I'll see you soon. You Thanks, can. Man. Uh, and how how do people reach out to you if they want to learn more about you or, or or try to get your services? Yeah, well, I'm on Facebook, of course. The firm is to Gallagher Sharp. Um, is a firm, Joe Papillardo. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, LinkedIn, Facebook, and then um, you can always uh, get in touch with me through the firm Gallagher Sharp or my email, which is impossible, but it's jpapillardo at Gallagher Sharp. You know what, I'll, I'll put some info uh, yeah. in the uh, in the article that we write. Thanks. Uh, some, some contact info. Well, I sure appreciate that opportunity. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to me. Okay, thank All right. you. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Uh, so we got a call with Ryan Schreiber here in a couple minutes from Carrier Direct. Let me go ahead and give a shout-out to Carrier Direct and thank them uh, for all of the lovely content that they provide with, to us on a weekly basis, as they did this week again. Uh, Diane Seo, thank you so much. Uh, so I'll jump into the DHL supply chain, the pricing power index for this week. We actually jumped five points. You know, these uh, We're seeing intermodal volumes down you know, double digits year over year. We're seeing uh, customs data come in that's not too pretty. Bye, Joe. Thank you. All right. Safe travels. Thank you so much. Uh, like I said, we're seeing custom data, especially that from China, which makes up, you know, uh, 22% of our imports. It's down 30% from its normal uh, Chinese New Year lows. So when is it going to stop? Are we going to see an increase in volumes? I think so. Uh, I think it'll come in, you know, the end of March, early April. We're still seeing a lot of blank sailings happening through the end of April. We're having uh, canceled sailings and we're having ships come, either smaller ships or ships that are completely empty uh, coming from China. But we are getting a lot of data uh, and we're getting a lot of sentiment from the, the maritime operators, the, the big shipping companies that are moving things from China to the U.S. that they're, they're seeing port activity. They're seeing almost normalcy in a lot of the ports, uh, the major ports in China. And this is a lot of that's because of the restrictions that were that were dropped on uh, February 28th. You know, the the factories themselves were open uh, almost three weeks ago now, um, but they didn't have a lot of the drayage capacity. They had nobody to move the goods from the factory to the port because a lot of the drayage drivers are migrant workers. As, as much of uh, the factory workers in China are, they live on other sides of the country. Uh, they were still under travel restriction. They weren't able to get in and move those goods. So uh, we've got some data uh, from Worldwide Logistics that Lorian LaRocco wrote about this weekend. That says, uh, if you look at this uh, drayage capacity there, the 28th and 29th, or not the, yeah, actually we did have a 29th, leap year, uh, 28th and 29th of February, you saw this drayage capacity just come flying back onto uh, online, and you're seeing a lot of these goods finally get to the port and eventually will hit the shores of the U.S. All that is to say uh, that that is all happening, that you're going to have shippers trying to, you know, there's there's two things that shippers need to do now when all of this, when, when you have this increase of demand, uh, increase of volume from the ports and also an increase of demand in certain goods because of the coronavirus, you got to do two things. You've got to meet that demand spike, which, you know, you have to do on a on an inventory side on yourself and, a, and another procurement side from wherever you're getting it from, typically China. And then two, you've got to be able to meet the logistical needs. You've got to you've got to secure uh, capacity for all of those goods. And, the, you know, we spoke to an international retailer just this week that said they're expecting an, in, uh, an increased need of trucking capacity up upwards of 30 and 35 percent by the end of March. So you're going to have a lot of shippers looking for capacity 
And this is all happening at the same time that our outbound tender volume index, our, our measure of volumes in the U.S., is up more than double digits year over year. It's up 13%. Volumes are looking really strong in the U.S. domestically, even though we're having schools shut down, we're having things happen. We haven't seen all of the impact of the coronavirus really seep into our data yet. We, we certainly will see it. Um, but for that reason, we see volumes up you know, 12% year over year. We actually saw uh, outbound tender rejection index kind of float upwards above 7% now. So for these reasons, we, we have moved the DHL supply chain pricing power index up five points uh, to the carriers. I wouldn't be surprised if we had five more points to the carriers this week. We, you know, we have OTVI continue to go up, OTRI continue to going up, and I'll be I'll be watching that new truck stop data pretty closely when we are doing our paper this week. We've got uh, we've got that new data from truckstop.com, which means we've got a hundred different lanes of spot data. Uh, you know, I think they're the hundred biggest lanes of spot data, and we've got an all-in rate there. And uh, I'm able to do a little math, you know, a very simple mile calculation, and get us a per mile rate on that. So we will use that uh, to see how this how this dynamic is changing between volumes and, and capacity, and whether uh, there's any impact of spot rates. So we'll do that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give. Ryan Schreiber, a call. I'm sure Kevin will be joining us here soon. Uh, but actually, I think Kevin is going to be out for today. So it's just, uh, yeah, just me. And let me call Ryan. Pardon me for the wait, guys. I usually would have a uh, have a filler here, Mr. Kevin Hill, talking with me. But he's in another webinar. This is Ryan. Hey, Ryan Schreiber. This is Andrew Cox, man. How you doing? Hey, Andrew. I'm good, buddy. How are you? I am lovely. I got some uh, some terrible news. Kevin is not going to be joining us today, so it's just you and me. Oh, no. Well, that's okay. Yeah, Happy I think, to be with you. Yeah, I think we can make it work. Yeah, we should, we should be able to. If not, we got bigger problems, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. What, what are you doing these days? Where are you, uh, where are you headed? You're always on the road. I am, I'm actually literally on the road right now. I'm uh, heading from Chicago toward the Milwaukee area uh, for a meeting this afternoon. Well, that sounds good, man. Let's uh, let's jump right into some of this data. This it's been a crazy uh, crazy couple of weeks with the coronavirus. Uh, I don't know if anybody if anybody at Carry Direct is taking any precautions. It kind of helps you to be traveling a little bit, be out of the office. Um, but let's jump into some of the data. You know, we've seen imports, uh, customs data, especially on the West Coast, down you know double digits, down massively um, over the past couple of months. We've seen intermodal intermodal volumes down, but somehow our, our outbound tender volume index is up twelve percent. What do you make of that? Well, uh, certainly, like, we think that uh, we, we work primarily domestically, right? So the, the information that we get is typically from our trucking clients and our intermediary clients. Last week, I was at the PCA conference, and there was definitely some concerns. People were definitely saying, hey, we're feeling the, we are feeling the pinch a little bit from, uh, from the virus, which is different than what we were hearing a couple weeks earlier at, like, the people conference and the BGSA uh, conferences. Um, that seems to have changed a little bit over the course of the last week or so. Consumers are spending a lot of money. They're going to stores, they're buying soap, they're buying some of these like supplies in case they have to, um, you know, hole up at home. So certainly like that seems to be some of it. Um, and there is a little bit of hope, uh, as you were just talking about before, before you called me around some of these sailings, um, uh, increasing, and that in the next few weeks, things will normalize a little bit uh, as compared to sort of like what they're supposed to be this year. Yeah, I agree with you, Ryan. I do think there's definitely a pull forward. I think that's affecting uh, you know, affecting these freight markets. We're seeing people just 
go crazy for for toilet paper for some reason. I, I see people, a lot of people loading up on that, like they're going to need that uh, extremely. But what do you think this leaves us for the second half recovery that everybody's kind of uh, expecting for and, and been waiting for? Well, you know, there, there's, there's a, there could be a little bit of a dam effect, right? I mean, there's been plenty of talk around whether or not, um, like whether or not some of these goods will ever eventually ship, right? Like particularly with like retail, you know, in season, out of season type things. But no, regardless, there'll be some pressure that kind of builds up behind this, behind this dam to get goods into the U.S. and then ship them. So there's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting mix there, right? Like you don't want the dam to burst. You certainly like want there to be a free flow of goods. And so, um, this could actually be a good thing going forward into the second half of the year if there's enough pressure to sort of buoy rate uh, going into the, to the, to the uh, second half. Mm, open question around uh, how oil prices are dropping, right? So, like, typically there's some sort of correlation there between oil prices and capacity. Oil prices going down typically means capacity is going to be looser. So that'll be an interesting interplay to watch. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up oil markets. Uh, you know, th- this is just the, one of the craziest weekends ever. Uh, you know, the way that Saudis slash the oil price and, and are going to increase production, trying to kind of pigeonhole the Russians into uh, into cutting production. But they seemingly are going to be able to ride this out. They said they can go months with a twenty five dollar uh, barrel of oil. What do you uh, think? It, yeah. uh, that's something that I'm not smart enough to talk on to be to be totally transparent about it. There's things I know a lot about and things I don't, I sort of watch what happens on the other side. If they say they can write it out, I suppose that I'm willing to take them at face value and say that they can. Whether they will or not is another question. So let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, you know I guess it is a, it is a big question mark with the impact that uh, that really cheap oil will have on trucking companies. But um, you know what do you think at least in the in the very near term is it going to you think it's going to loosen up some capacity around the country having such cheap gas? But potentially, there's there's so many you know there's so many interesting interplays here, right? I mean, trucking companies going out of business doesn't necessarily really remove capacity from the market. Maybe it moves capacity around the market, right? Because um, drivers just go and move to another company. Yeah, the driver just doesn't suddenly like uh, you know most of the drivers don't just suddenly like hang up the like hang up the spurs, if you will, and like mm-hmm. go do something else. Um, so uh, it'll be that'll definitely be interesting. I don't think that there's a lot of pressure toward um, toward the market. Although, like you may see, it's not so much that the oil price might bring additional capacity into the market, but um, you know, domestic production is going to change. Domestic production might slow down. You'll see these sand haulers uh, and the oil field haulers maybe move into dry bear and a reefer capacity. Uh, that's certainly like a potential impact. Something to definitely keep an eye on. Yeah, I, I think that's an impact as well. I think uh, a lot of those drivers that were working in the oil fields are going to be moving over. Uh, there's not going to be any drilling, at least for the near term. There's not going to be any new open wells uh, being happened. So there's a lot of drivers there, in, you know, in Texas, Oklahoma area that that are going to be getting back uh, on the over the road. Yeah, the drivers, uh, you know, the drivers are talking about that on social media a ton. Um, that was that's been the kind of the chatter on some of these social media boards that I follow the last few days. Um, that they cert- they certainly expect that to come uh, from the from the oil prices, particularly. Well, cool, uh, Ryan. You want to do uh, you want to do the long short segment with me since Kevin's not here? Yeah, that's uh, I love long short. Okay, cool. We'll do it. So, have you? Uh, I guess I got to ask you if you've heard of it. Have you heard of Quibi? It's the new uh, kind of streaming platform coming out next month. 
Okay. No, say okay. more about this. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you more about it. So it is, uh, it's a, it's a mobile native uh, streaming platform. It's going to be dropping April sixth. They've got, I mean, like almost a billion and a half dollars in funding. I mean, ridiculously well funded. Uh, they've got some monster names like Jeffrey Kansenberg. He's the ex uh, chair of Disney and Meg Whitman, the honestly gangster ex CEO of HP. Uh, so they've got big names uh, on the uh, on the administrative side, and they've also got big names on the talent side. They're going to drop fifty new shows uh, when they uh, when they launch on. April 6th. We've got shows from LeBron and, and Christoph, Christoph Waltz and Chrissy Teigen. I mean, the list goes on and on. But the really special thing about the streaming platform is its ability to um, flip both ways. So everything's filmed with two cameras. It's filmed with a, vert- with a vertical camera and a horizontal camera. So it's kind of like almost interactive content where it will ask you to flip uh, your camera for like action scenes or, or something else. It's basically just kind of focusing on us migrating away from everything in the rest of the world and just focusing on our phone screen. <laughs> that seems to be the only movement here. Are you, uh, are you long or short the idea of a, of a digitally native, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, of a, of a mobile native uh, streaming platform really upending the way that we consume content? Is it free or paid? Uh, they're given 90 days away for free and then I think it's like six bucks a month. Uh, I'm going to be short on it. I have a good friend who is an entertainment attorney, and a couple months ago I was with him uh, out in the West Coast. And and my question was like, hey, what's the long-term plan for any of these streaming services? Because it's getting expensive between Disney Plus and, uh, you know, and CBS, like you have to pay to stream. Right. So, uh, it, you know, if, if it was free for a while, it could give consumers a chance to, like, get comfortable with it and, and change their behavior or change their expectations. But um, people are already paying for a lot of streaming services, so i got to be short on it for that reason. Okay. Well, I'm glad you went short because I'll, I'll go long on this. I think uh, not only the, the names that they have behind them with Meg Whitman and, and the, uh, the ex-chair from Disney, but they've got this ridiculous cast of people that are going to be making shows, not, even, not always uh, actors or even... Um, you know, personalities of that type. They've got a kind of a wide range of, of things going on with some really clever ideas for shows. They're going to be kind of smaller, more digestible, the, the five to 20 minute range. Uh, so yeah, I'm long. I think they can. I think our attention span is only going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And this is uh, one big step to, <laughs> to, to losing the one hour streaming platform. Uh, it's an interesting right. idea. I, like, I, it's a cool idea and I'm excited to hear what happens with it yeah i am too I'm, I'm excited for the free 90 days i just actually found that out today so i'm definitely gonna be signing up uh and, and testing out some of the new stuff all right i'll have to get your login yeah all right sounds good uh and our last long short this is a really sad one for me i hope i hope i'm, I'm gonna be short I, I hope you're short i hope the committee that decides this is short it's about march madness do you think it's going to happen and will it happen with fans in the stands is short meaning that it's short meaning that it will end. happen hopefully Oh yeah, I think I think it'll happen. There's too much, there's too much money at stake. Uh, there's there's too much, uh, fa- like fandom is just so emotionally attached to this. I think I think there's no way that it doesn't it doesn't happen. And as a Michigan State Spartan, I certainly hope that uh, I'm also uh, uh, hoping that they go they go pretty far. So whether that's long or short, I'm I'm hopeful. I'm long on their hope, hopefulness. Okay, yeah, I'm short as well. I didn't know you were. I didn't know you were a Spartan. Uh, how are the Spartans oh, doing yeah. these days? I, I mean, my team is Vanderbilt, and we've been absolute garbage this year. So I haven't really paid attention yeah. much. Up, up, up and down. Like let's leave it. Let's say that they've had they have some talent. They're a little bit short on uh, their bench, but some some of their role players are really stepping up. So we'll see. I mean, this is uh, this is Tom Izzo time. Yep. So uh, they're, they're getting hot at the right time as they usually do. Yeah, he's a master of March, isn't he? 
He sure is. That's why they call it. They, that's why they renamed it in Michigan from March to Islam. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, Ryan, that is all I've got today. Thank you. Uh, thanks for calling in, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Talk to you soon again. All right, man. Bye. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into episode 19 of Great Quarter. Guys, we'll be back uh, next week. We got a six and a half, actually six, six days, 23 hour break. Uh, we'll be back next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Talk to you then.